The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, folks, welcome. Welcome to TNT. Today's News Talk TFI Fridays. We're here Monday to Friday every week, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 p.m. till 6 p.m. UK time, everything else in between. It's been a momentous week. I think nobody can argue with that. And there's been a big, big, big development overnight. We're going to share that with you. Hopefully in the first hour, we're going to bring on one of the best Middle East analysts really on the scene, Leila Hatoum, uh, investigative journalist based in Lebanon. She's going to break down the collapse of the temporary truce. The ceasefire has been broken. Who broke it? Well, Take a wild guess, but we won't give it away uh, until we go to our guest in the first hour. Looking forward to that conversation. The second hour will be uh, delving into the legal dramas and traumas uh, in the bowels of the federal courts of New York, the Southern District of New York. Matthew Russell Lee is a man on the spot there, and he's going to relay to us what's been happening from inside the courtrooms of these various trials, some of them very interesting this week. We'll get the inside scoop. We'll also hear about the latest with the Trump indictments as well. How is that going to affect the election cycle coming up? Matthew's got some opinions on this as well, based on what he's seen and heard inside the federal courts. Uh, so look forward to that with Matthew Russell Lee from Inner City Press. Uh, so going to be an interesting segment for sure. Um, and now you probably heard about the debate. Let's go over the U.S. politics for a moment. You probably heard about the debate uh, with Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. I just cannot underline how highly unorthodox this is. For a supposed front-runner GOP candidate, somebody who believes they're, you know, they are apparent, as it were, to Donald Trump to get the GOP nomination at the uh, GOP convention next summer, Ron DeSantis. So why is he debating a Democrat in a debate, but not just any Democrat? Uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. This is very unusual. Republicans have their party debates. They debate each other. Donald Trump's not showing up to these, obviously. Um, why would he? He's so far ahead in the polls, and it would just turn into an absolute circus. So he's still riding high in the polls without even showing up to what they call the kids' table now, the GOP debate. So why is DeSantis over there interloping, uh, doing a cross-party debate with Gavin Newsom? By the way, DeSantis is running for president. So what's Gavin Newsom running for? governor of California. Well, that's usually a stepping stone to the presidency. It has been in the past. Uh, former governors have run for president before and successfully as well. Uh, most notably, of course, would be Ronald Reagan, but he wasn't the only one who had a shot at the national uh, office there. So Newsom looks like he is positioning himself to get his brand more exposure. So the question is who fared best and maybe Newsom didn't do as well as people might have expected, he he seemed to be uh, more highly rated than what he showed last night in this debate. And as Zero Hedge is reporting here, while, while we seem to be heading for a rematch with Biden and Trump in 2024, Fox hosted this debate with Newsom and DeSantis. DeSantis probably hoped to boost his chances in the current Republican primaries by going cross-party here with Newsom head-to-head. Nikki Haley's campaign is the main challenger. Trump is 
losing momentum, you could say, at the moment. Uh, but overall, the the lead is just so significant that I think he has, you know, he's a comfortable 20, 25-point lead here. Uh, if you combine the poll numbers of all challengers, they still fall short of Donald Trump. So that's interesting indeed. So I think this is two things. This is the Democrat Party basically doing a test run uh, to check the polls. The focus groups will be in action. You can believe it right now, today, immediately after the debate, of course. They had focus groups running. Plus, this week as well, they'll be gathering data from this to try to see what the favorability ratings are for a candidate like Gavin Newsom. He does take a lot of boxes in terms of traditional American politics. What are we talking about? He's young. He's spry. He's got a full head of hair. That's a good start. That's usually a baseline requirement for any American uh, presidential candidate, at least uh, after Gerald Ford. Um, so the problem is with his politics. And the fact that he's got a lot of skeletons in the basement, um, that's putting it mildly with his mayorship in San Francisco uh, and really presiding over one of the most disastrous economies in the country. We're talking about California, uh, really running it into the ground. And let's not even talk about what happened over COVID uh, with Newsom during his tenure and the vaccine mandates and everything else, an absolute disaster. So I think they're looking for some contrast there. DeSantis looking to contrast himself against the quintessential uh, democratic sort of white bread, uh, mainstream centrist Democrat. I wouldn't call Newsom a centrist. He's pretty radical. Actually, if you look at his policies, if you actually look at the policies that California has enacted over the years, and these are things that he, not just him, past governors as well. We talked about Jerry Brown and others have pushed forward these policies uh, pretty aggressively. So that's, there, there is a big difference there in terms of policy, but which one of these candidates, let's say theoretically, these two might go head to head uh, in a presidential race next year? I mean, that would be kind of depressing, but let's just say, you know, for argument's sake that this happens, who is going to have the most crossover appeal? In other words, who is going to win over the independents? And that's really what it, it's really what it comes down to. And I honestly cannot give you a straight answer on this. I, I don't see Newsom winning over as many independents as DeSantis. The problem is DeSantis is so far from being able to challenge Trump. So again, there's a hypothetical argument. So bottom line, who benefits most from this? It's got to be Newsom. Gets more exposure. He's on a national stage. He's going against a, you could say, a contender on the GOP side. So in terms of his party and his potential donor base, they're looking at his performance here. He's very photogenic. He's got the teeth, the white gnashers. There's there's a lot going for him. You know, Democrats, that would be two sort of uh, Anglo-Saxon white men uh, successively. That might be sort of a bridge too far for the uh, party that uh, touts its diversity, uh, first and foremost. So, yeah, that's uh, maybe not going to go over too well there. So what are we really looking at here? It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting indeed. So keep your eyes on Mr. Newsom. He's also been courting uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, so he seems to have struck up his own relationship with the Chinese president, whereby Joe Biden beat Joe Biden to the punch on that. By the way, that was no coincidence. So the donor class is looking at this. Could Gavin Newsom get the nomination without running in the primaries? Ah, that's a good question. And the answer is yes, he can. Joe Biden could win the primaries. He doesn't even need to... to Joe Biden doesn't, basically he's running unopposed. 
and he doesn't even need to campaign in the primaries. They've they've managed to get rid of the RFK problem. The Democrats pushed him into the independent lane. So Biden could bow out of the primaries. Listen, Biden could bow out of the primaries after Super Tuesday or before Super Tuesday. It doesn't matter. After New Hampshire or Iowa, he could bow out of the primaries. And it's not going to affect anything. At that point, you might have a change. Kamala Harris could be sworn in temporarily as vice president. Then they have to nominate or as president. Kamala moves into Biden's office temporarily. But then you have to nominate a vice president. Who would that be? Who would the Democrats nominate as a vice president? I don't think Hillary Clinton. What about Gavin Newsom? And there you go. So he doesn't even need to be on the ballot during the primaries. I mean, this would be the ultimate cynical uh, electoral ploy by the Democrats. But let's face it, they're pretty desperate and they're going to have to pull some serious acrobatics in order to offset this Biden problem because it just gets worse. And you know what's coming, don't you? The impeachment. Yes. The impeachment hearings, the articles of impeachment, that's coming. So that's going to be another problem for Biden. I mean, they're just going to bring all of that dirty laundry up, all of that uh, baggage, skeletons in the Ukrainian basement, all of that stuff is coming out. And if it does, it's just going to be a very long, arduous, and painful uh, Biden re-election campaign. Will he actually make it? I don't know, and I, I, I sort of tend to think no. And this is why. Otherwise, we wouldn't be looking at Newsom grandstanding like this, festooning around uh, on on a Fox News debate stage. So there's something going on here, and uh, he's not the only one that's being auditioned, mind you. He's not the only one. There are others. There are other potential suitors uh, for this position to take over Joe Biden's flailing tenure. Um, and will Biden hold on for dear life? I mean, how much more mileage can they get out of that old pickup? I don't know. I don't know. Or that old Corvette. I don't know. I don't think a lot. I don't think a lot. He is not long for the White House and probably be retired after some uh, embarrassing psychological incident that might befall our president in Pennsylvania Avenue. Wow. So this is a watch this space type of moment, folks. Watch this space. Keep your eyes on Gavin because he's making he's making his moves. Ron, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Ron seems to be desperately desperately seeking approval from the GOP base and not getting it, unfortunately, not getting it. Look, let's take a break here with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back with a veteran Middle Eastern investigative journalist, Leila Hatoum. We're going to break down the latest in the Gaza crisis, all this and more. Stick around. We'll be right back. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to 
guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. Take us back in time. And who was Mike Flynn? He was the National Security Advisor to the President. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming President of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. At this moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism, or you're talking about communism. Socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism, but the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat, people will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com At the top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do. On today's News Talk, TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to this live broadcast. We're still in the first hour. This is TNT, today's news talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Now we're going to delve a little bit deeper into some breaking news overnight. Uh, in case you haven't seen the headlines, uh, there seems to have been a lapse in the temporary truce uh, that uh, Gaza has uh, enjoyed over the last six or seven days. Um, but what does this mean and how significant is this? Uh, what can people expect uh, from both sides of this conflict, both on the side of the Palestinian resistance and Hamas and the Israeli occupation forces? I want to welcome onto the program veteran investigative journalist based in the Middle East, Leila Hatoum, is joining us on the line right now. Leila, appreciate you joining us this afternoon. Always a pleasure to be on your show. 
Thank you, Layla. Uh, I was, uh, let's just say I'm not surprised at the news that I've seen overnight, but I want to check with you to find out what the substance of this is, because the thing is, Layla, I can't really even trust mainstream reporting these days because there's so much smoke and mirrors going on. What's your assessment of this situation as it stands now? Uh, it, well, actually, let's start that uh, there was never a ceasefire because the Israelis continue to breach it for the past six to seven days. They've targeted Palestinian civilians, not only in the occupied uh, Palestinian territories in the West Bank, but also in Gaza. And the first day of the ceasefire, they killed one uh, uh, civilian who was checking on his home in North uh, Gaza, and they've injured multiple others. And they continue to basically sporadically uh, spray people with um, live bullets every now and then. So there was no ceasefire. In the West Bank, it continues, the, situ the dire situation continues, but literally since yesterday until today, the Israelis have ramped up their attacks against civilian, uh, civilians basically in uh, Jenin, in Nablus, in Tol Karim, Ramallah, and uh, even in Bethlehem. Uh, they've closed roads, they've, they've located whole cities. Jenin has been completely cut off from the rest of um, the West Bank. And there are uh, in the information that basically dozens of uh, Palestinians have been rounded up over the past several hours, and um, two Palestinians have been killed as well. This is what we've heard. And because there's a media blackout, we can't actually know for, for a fact what's happening on the ground. Uh, in Nablus, the Israelis continue to go door to door and basically attack and detain Palestinians. In Bethlehem, the, uh, the Israelis actually closed down, um, uh, they actually closed down, uh, the, the they blockaded the, the whole roads uh, leading to uh, Sur city, where basically the two uh, alleged attackers uh, uh, from earlier yesterday, uh, they actually, the ones who killed three uh, Israelis, um, so the Israelis blockaded the whole city and uh, they actually moved over to, to um, demolish the houses of those uh, uh, two alleged uh, attackers. But then again, you have to understand that Israelis are calling them terrorists for killing three Israelis. However, the Israelis have killed over 250, 243 now, 243 Palestinians throughout the West Bank over the past six weeks. So this is a reaction to the aggression of the Israelis. So the situation is very dire. When it comes to Gaza, the moment the ceasefire was announced over, the Israelis moved in with their air force. They carried out air raid against the central uh, central uh, central strip of uh, Gaza and uh, towards the north as uh, towards the south as well. They also shelled it with artillery and they shelled some of parts of uh, the northern Gaza. However, in northern Gaza, the Israelis continue to maintain their position close to the uh, what they call security fence, and they're not moving on ground. And this is what we have actually heard over the past two days from our sources and boots on the ground, that the Israelis are planning on just using air raids from the first day to cut off central uh, Gaza Strip towards north, uh, south, and then basically attack civilians over there. We have dozens of civilians who have been killed by Israeli air raids. And uh, basically, you have uh, more than uh, 85 Palestinians so far who have been injured and reported to hospitals. And the number is increasing. They haven't stopped. When it comes to Lebanon, do you want me, do you want me to talk about Lebanon? Absolutely. Yeah. What What is this uh, status right now with this southern Lebanon? Moment, and the, yeah. It's it's actually it's igniting at the moment in Lebanon because uh, the Israelis directly moved in for the kill since the morning. They started uh, shelling Lebanese uh, towns, mainly border uh, Lebanese towns close to the blue line. Uh, we're talking about Ramia, Adaisi, Kfarkila. 
um, the, the whole strip that's adjacent to the Galilee Panhandle. And if you know uh, the area very well, or if you open Google Maps, uh, Galilee Panhandle is part of the Lebanese occupied territories that the Israelis have settlements over there from the Metula settlement to Miskaf Am, Kriyat uh, Shmona, a little bit down to hun towards Hunin Valley, and then all the way down to Nakura. So um, the Israelis continue to shell throughout the day. Hezbollah retaliated by targeting um, Israeli spy uh, towers in Nakura, uh, in Burj Al Alam, uh, basically uh, uh, hill, and uh, at, uh, also they targeted the Ramya uh, uh, military post. There were um, an infantry, a patrol from from the Israeli stations over there, and Hezbollah actually targeted them. And we have information on the ground that there are two Israeli soldiers who were killed in that attack. Um, they were reported injured uh, earlier, but we have confirmed news that they were killed. Um, the Israelis continue until now to shell uh, the border Lebanese towns with the white phosphorus, and they're burning um, hundreds of years old uh, olive trees over there. Let's That's just put this. The Lebanese That's just. Uh, we'll get. Well, I'm going to go back to Lebanon in a moment, uh, Leila, because I have a question to ask how this relates to the truce and the ceasefire. But just uh, from a wider political perspective, I want to get your opinion on this. I mean, it seemed like that progress was being made in. Uh, Israel recovering all of its hostages, and there's a lot of high-value uh, hostages which are being kept by Hamas IDF generals and high-ranking officers and so forth. It seemed to me like they had some momentum there, Netanyahu having some political pressure from Israelis to make some headway on the repatriation of hostages. Why? Why do they break down now? Because is this because also the embarrassment of the Bibas family, which was supposedly killed, according to Hamas anyway, killed in Israeli airstrikes or died from injuries thereof, hugely embarrassing uh, for the Israelis. Is this an attempt to sort of divert attention away from that? Do you think that factored into it? I know that they probably have uh, very detailed plans and what they want to do next, but it seemed to me like they had a chance to get their hostages back. What, what do you think about this? Well, you have to understand, since six weeks, seven weeks until now, the Israelis have not recorded any victory on the ground yet. Netanyahu, it would be basically him committing not only political suicide, but total suicide if he actually pulls back his soldiers, having achieved nothing, and then go back to internally uh, to, to his people in Tel Aviv and say, listen, we, we, we've ended war. So what did you ha have to achieve? Nothing. You only released part of the uh, hostages and not all of them. And then add to it the news uh, and the video that actually surfaced for, for um, the Israeli Jewish man who lost both his wife and his two children. In the Israeli air raids against Hamas, so basically the Israelis were the ones who killed those hostages, to say basically it's Netanyahu's fault. And the fact that Netanyahu refused to exchange their bodies, to give them proper burial in exchange of uh, Palestinian prisoners to be released, that actually added the uh, oil to fire and people are boiling, like literally the streets of uh, Tel Aviv uh, at the moment. People are uh, angry about their government, its lack of achievements, and it's continued the uh, basically uh, acts that would never lead to peace at one point or another. The, those who are calling for peace or ceasefire are more than the, the radicals on the street who are calling for, for bloodshed. And those the, the radicals are being moved by uh, Bengvir at one point or another, who is one step closer, according to our sources, to cede from the government and start his own militia and go ahead. He has been um, supplying weapons to settlers since uh, the past 12, uh, 11 months, almost since the beginning of this year. Um, so I don't believe that the Israelis ever had the intention of leaving Gaza before they actually record a certain victory. They didn't care about the hostages from the first place because they had 
um, enforce the Hannibal Doctrine or Directive, which means that they are going to go and bombard everybody, including hostages. They don't negotiate with terrorists in their mind, right? Um, once they had 51 hostages killed by Israeli air raids, that's when they had to pull the brakes because of the mass anger against the government. And then they started doing this kind of a negotiation to release hostages from both sides. And uh, once they they achieved part of the hostages, mostly the ones who actually hold dual passports, that's when the Israelis moved in for the kill. And we saw Blinken yesterday giving them the green light, telling them, oh, you can go to South Gaza, but don't repeat the same thing that you've done in North Gaza. And I've said it, 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 literally, it literally is as if you're leashing, leashing out um, a pedophile in a kindergarten class and telling him you can touch the six-year-olds, but you cannot touch the three-year-olds. The massacre <laughs> will happen. That's a, so, it, yeah. a it's a pretty stark metaphor, Leila. But it's absolutely appropriate in this situation. In fact, it's uh, it's it's even treating it lightly. Um, so Blinken's statement looks like he's providing cover for the Israeli operation. So his role as the top diplomat in the United States government is to provide some kind of smoke and cover to allow Israel to do what it wants to do. Basically, he's not intervening at all. That's what it seems like to me. What 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 do you what do you think on the U.S. side, Leila? Uh, on the U.S. side, I think they are fed up with uh, Bibi Netanyahu. He's grown beyond his uh, role. The, the fact that he doesn't listen to them anymore means that they're going to uh, go against him and eliminate him. But first, they have to move the streets against him. And this is why we've seen mainstream media in the United States basically launching their articles and uh, criticism of Netanyahu throughout the past three weeks exactly. Uh, Blinken yesterday had uh, at one point uh, told Gallant that they cannot go on for months because Gallant had said, we're going on with this uh, offensive uh, uh, against Gaza and we can last for, and it might last for months. And that's when Blinken, if you remember, he said one word, which is very, very interesting. He said, you don't have credit for that. So it means that the Americans are looking forward to a fight, but that doesn't last for months. We don't know what's in store for them. The Democrats need at one point or another to secure a foothold in the Eastern Mediterranean region so they can take over the energy resources, be it in Lebanon, be it in uh, occupied Palestine and all the way down to southeastern Mediterranean Egypt. And they need allies over there. And if they don't have allies of the, or they don't have strong uh, allies, they need to have a military base. And uh, this is what the Americans are looking for. That's why they sent two, uh, two of their most expensive uh, carriers uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean region. So this is interesting. So the New York Times put out this story in the last 24 hours, which I'm sure you've seen that they had uh, Israel had pre-knowledge a, a year in advance of Operation Alexa Flood or Jericho Wall, as it's called, codenamed Jericho Wall for the Israelis, I assume. But they had this for a year. Why, so my question is, based on what you just said, Leila, why would that story be released now? It seems like it would do damage to Netanyahu. Is this part of that? operation you're talking about this from coming from washington what do you what do you think possibly i mean uh it's it's no secret that whenever basically the american administration any of the past american administrations including their cia agents they wanted to attack a certain uh, element they would use articles based on sources nothing is basically named on on the record and the two best mediums over there are always the New York Times and CNN at one point. If you remember when they went over to attack Venezuela and the Raisawi, who was the interior minister, they launched this whole article, like series of articles in the New York Times based on sources that he was selling uh, passports to the Iranians, to Hezbollah, and nothing stuck on him. And he had to respond with, with a statement, right? Same thing goes for what's happening now. This was one of the conspiracy theories from day one that the Israelis basically allowed Hamas to go in so they can use it as an excuse to go and basically wipe out uh, Gaza and take over. But like 
after seven weeks, they have achieved nothing, nothing, right? It is possible that the Israelis didn't know about it. They've always thought that the Hamas might attack, but not this mass scale. When New York Times goes out 6,000 miles away from the area of tension, and the reporters on the ground over here, they don't know anybody except for the Israelis. And I'm sure 100% that Hamas wouldn't be leaking something like that, or the Israelis leaking something that, like that that incriminates them. And I'm sure it's basically made up news, unless basically they have no sources on the ground. So what happens is this actually discredits Netanyahu because he failed uh, what he promised his people, securing them, taking care of their security, and at the same time, uh, basically having this uh, safe haven for Jews across the world in Israel, right? So he failed in doing so. The article shows that he was a failure not only to listen to advice, but his also security his security team also failed to fail to do so. So it's time for him to go, and that's part of the ramped up. Um, uh, defamation against Netanyahu, but it's based on real things. I mean, like the guy is corrupt. He's a, a bloodthirsty hound. And uh, at the same time, he's radical. So it's time for him to go. And they, they also for put a feminist. I don't care if he if he actually goes by being kicked out or basically by being lynched. <laughs> well, they, they also put a feminist spin on this story. They said that uh, uh, there's a very masculine culture in the IDF, and there were female intelligence operatives who warned, or, you know, sounded the alarm a year ago, and they were sort of written off, including on the day. So that that plays very well with a certain American political audience you on the know left. The American, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, the <laughs> Americans have to be inclusive, and it always have to be it, he, she, them, they already all of uh, non-binary, etc. So at any point or another, they will have to include a female voice. And at one point, one of them would be basically homosexual and the other basically would be an it thing. It has to be a, a, a collective effort of everybody in the society, right? This is how they write their articles now. Yes, yes. Um, unfortunately, this this is part of the political tapestry that's being used, and it definitely that will go against Netanyahu from the Democrat and progressive side. So I can see a lot of what you're saying here does line up politically. It does make sense, uh, Leila, with you talking about your thesis is that um, to 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 basically you know usher out Netanyahu and then take some of the toxicity with him basically and be able to kind of start from scratch again uh during the election cycle which the Democrats are you know going into the primaries in January but uh on, on the on the Ben Gavir side what you said to him is very interesting about him forming his own independent militia basically it's a latter-day stern gang isn't it it's a latter-day Ergun that's what's being proposed and is that not to the benefit of Netanyahu and you know some of the more bellicose factions within the Israeli government because it, they can do things off the books that maybe the government can't do. What do you think about this? I think this is actually probably something they're very interested in doing. What do you think? Possibly, but you have to understand at the end of the day, Netanyahu is the negotiator and he's the businessman and he's the politician. So he has to fall within lines at one point or another, even if he goes rogue on basically his handlers, uh, the Americans at one point, but he still has to go and like, it's a take a back and forth between him and them. When it comes to Bengvir, he's bounded by no rules. And this guy is really crazy. And I've heard it from several sources, including Israelis, who have said that this guy can be reined in. And you saw him with the first comment that came out of his mouth when he was commenting on the attack that happened in uh, Jerusalem uh, less than 24 hours ago. He went out to say, I call upon everybody to hold arms and go fight. And some people were asking me, like, Leila, like, he's, is he going to arm them? I said, like, he's already armed the settlers. Those settlers have been attacking West Bank civilians for the past seven weeks. 
And they moved in before the Israeli occupation forces moved in to start detaining people. The settlers actually shot farmers who were actually collecting, um, uh, they were harvesting their, their olives, their olive trees. The first attack was from settlers against a Palestinian farmer who was 17 years old. He was helping his parents collect uh, or basically uh, the olives from, from their grove. And this increased by time. Unfortunately, there's a media blackout. Media, um, mainstream media, especially the ones in the West, they don't care about what's happening in the West Bank. That's why they don't hear much of those stories. And that's why we continue to follow up on those cases since day one. It's been happening for the past six weeks, as I said. I barely saw anything in the media, in the mainstream media, for the first four weeks at least. And, and just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the background, armed settler incursions and attacks on Palestinians, this is a problem that goes back 25 years, uh, doesn't it? Uh, give a little background. Well, it's it's even more than that. They always claim that they fear for their lives. It's self-defense, so they have to be armed. Most of them have been military trained with the Israeli occupation forces. They've done their service in the military. But some of them are also basically the ultra-Orthodox um, Zionists who don't believe they need to go to the army, but they hold arms and they actually believe if they kill Palestinians, that's that's a bonus point uh, on the record as, as uh, faithful Jews, which is completely far from the truth because Judaism doesn't call for killing people. I'll bite what, what some might say or use the textbooks, but they're using it in the wrong way. And since 25 years, if you remember what happened with the second Intifada, the Israelis have literally ramped up the collecting arms in their um, in their homes so they can attack at any point. And whenever they take over a home, they actually militarize the whole area. And then the Israeli occupation forces come over and then support that presence. Don't forget that in the West Bank, since the Oslo agreements until now, there has been over uh, like basically uh, hundreds of uh, illegal settlements uh, spread around uh, all across uh, the west uh, the west bank they continue to expand and cut roads in the face of palestinians anybody who stops them they shoot him dead and uh, we have about half a million settlers living in those occupied uh, settlements and that's basically jerusalem alone you have 220,000 um, israeli settlers in east jerusalem which is a massive number compared to the community uh, of Christians and Muslims over there. So you have a total of uh, three quarters of a million, 700, uh, 720,000 uh, Israeli settlers, well-armed and ready to kill at any point. And, and the East Jerusalem issue, uh, it looks like there's been you know a lot of uh, flare-ups there right now in the last uh, 72 hours, uh, Leila. And that is this a good opportunity for uh, the extremist the extremist wing of the Netanyahu government to basically purge this area or make significant inroads in trying to make it, let's say, unlivable uh, for Palestinians. In other words, they, they've had their eye on a number of key properties and uh, places within East Jerusalem. This is on the roadmap of Netanyahu's Israel, isn't it? You have to remember, Netanyahu, since back in the 1990s, every single one of his interviews on TV or on the radio, he always said that he doesn't believe in a two-state solution, that Israel should take everything, the Arabs should take the Palestinians in, and uh, all of Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. This was further cemented by uh, uh, Donald Trump, the former Israeli, uh, former uh, Israeli, the former American <laughs> president. If you remember, um, I don't know if you were there, but I was in Saudi Arabia when he visited Saudi Arabia back in 2017. And he had said um, in his speech that he's going to visit his friends in Jerusalem, the Israeli friends in Jerusalem, and then meet with the Palestinians and basically, he, he named a different area. And that's when I wrote my article saying that is Trump looking towards declaring uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? 
less than a few months later, he said that he's going to move the embassy to, to Jerusalem. So the Israelis are working towards taking all of Jerusalem to be their capital, whereas the Palestinians have completely agreed since times of Oslo until basically 2017 with Hamas basically amending its charter that they are agreed to a two-state solution based on the lands of 1967 with Eastern Jerusalem as their capital. So the people of the land, the natives, have agreed to split the land with the occupier and the occupier is refusing that. They want everything and nothing else. Netanyahu has been saying that, so I, I highly doubt that it's going to change. What you, they're working now at like basically making Palestinians' lives harder, especially the Jerusalemites. Jerusalem, they're, they're trying to kick them out. And if they don't leave willingly, they will be shot dead. Unfortunately, the, the whole world is talking about it. We're here with uh, investigative journalist based in the Middle East, Leila Hatoum, delving deeper into the crisis in Gaza and looking at some of the uh, more salient points of this issue and some of the breaking developments here. We're going to take a break real quick with TNT, today's news talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. While the fiery images of mostly peaceful protests coming out of central Dublin over the weekend were disturbing, and although no one condones arson, property damage, and violence against police, it was good to see the Irish finally get their Irish up and direct their ire where it properly belongs, against their own government, which has been selling out the Irish people for decades now. What triggered the upheaval? The stabbing of a young woman and two little children, including a five-year-old girl who is still in hospital with life-threatening injuries, by a Muslim maniac who was, you guessed it, known to police. The guard had disarmed the man just last month after finding him with an illegal knife. They knew he was a problem and they did nothing to stop these attacks. Ireland is actively promoting its own destruction. It is committing suicide in exactly the same way the United Kingdom committed social suicide. The number one name for new boys in Galway last year, Mohammed for the first time ever. Ireland needs to get a hold of the fact that the enemy is within the gates and their own government are the ones that have opened the doors. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. My character Shazam knows all about growing up in a family full of teenage superheroes. They're bold. Where's everyone going? To fight crime. Okay. Adventurous. Shazam! There's never a dull moment. And no matter what happens, they'll always have your back. All they need is a place to grow and be themselves. And the best part is, you don't have to be a superhero to adopt a teen. Learn more about adopting a teen from foster care. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're still in hour number one of this live broadcast here on TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host, and uh, we're going to go over to our guest. Uh, we're breaking down the situation right now uh, in the Middle East, specifically in Gaza. We'll also talk about uh, on the Lebanese, South Lebanese front with Israel's northern border in the occupied territories. We're joined by Leila Hatoum, veteran investigative journalist based in Lebanon. Leila, um, with regards to Gaza, there's also been some developments. Uh, a new map has been released or has it been leaked but what it shows to me is stark and very worrying it looks like uh, an israeli plan or what their future plan is 
for at least northern Gaza, a partitioning plan? Are we looking at a full-blown annexation here? Certainly shades of South Lebanon, but uh, this is even more uh, chronic, I think. But uh, what's your reading on this? Explain what's, what, what's happened here. Well, if you look at it from military terms, uh, that map uh, insinuates that there is going to be one bite at a time. Basically, they bite pieces of land every single uh, attack that happens. They're going to take North Gaza. They're going to push everybody towards South Gaza. And then later on, they'll take basically Central Gaza and so forth. But there's like, I, I don't know how how truth, uh, the, the, how, how much of truth uh, is, that to, to, is to that map. But uh, what I can talk about is what the map that actually was handed over by the Israeli occupation forces to the media that shows the blocks and the zoning uh, across Gaza, basically that says that the Israelis are targeting certain blocks and they are uh, going to warn people living in other blocks that if you are in block 90, for example, we advise you to leave because we're going to, to uh, hit it. And in the eyes of the world, this uh, shows that the Israelis are giving ample time and enough warning for the civilians in Palestine and Gaza uh, in particular. And uh, before they actually move for, uh, to, to bombard an area against Hamas and that they have done their part. But this is farther from the truth because there's nowhere for you to run. That's one thing. The other thing is that there's no surgical attacks against heavily populated civilian areas. No matter what happens, you can't just hit basically an apartment and not kill somebody who's beneath that apartment, also another civilian. Today, we had dozens of, of uh, people who actually they died because of the Israeli surgical attacks, and they're all civilians, mostly children and women. So I don't know what, what their excuse is that, but they're trying to, to, to uh, pass on this propaganda that they're basically being uh, uh, fair enough, and they're giving ample warning which doesn't make any sense to me because there's nowhere to run. The whole of Gaza Strip is blockaded and every other place is being bombarded. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, I think, I think we don't, we don't need to guess what's coming next. Uh, it, if Israel continues their sort of plan, uh, continues the program that they seem to have laid out here, uh, whether this is in the next few weeks, the next few months, or in six months, this is clearly, they have a trajectory here. They have an, they have a, an operation that they want to execute, and that includes basically uh, northern Gaza, either acquiring it as a, what, a security buffer zone? Is this how they're going to sell it? And, and they need Hamas, don't they, to be uh, in, or they need to, even they could use this sort of the temporary military defeat on their end to justify a, a future attack on South Gaza, Leila. I mean, there's different ways Israel might play this. What do you think? They will always use a scarecrow. If there's no Hamas, they will use something else. And if there's no, no something else, they will create a scarecrow of their own to actually use it against the Palestinians whenever they want to achieve something against them or take their land. Um, the buffer zone or the no man's, uh, no man's land, uh, as uh, the Israeli occupation forces call it, um, I highly doubt it's going to be just for uh, North Gaza. I think basically North Gaza, they want to, to turn it into uh, a city of uh, settlements because uh, you've heard uh, Netanyahu two days ago, 40, 48 hours ago, he actually put a cornerstone for a new settlement in the in Gaza enclave called Orfir. And it's named after um, uh, a murderer and a thug who actually used to torture Palestinians in the Negev. And uh, uh, the, this guy, basically, his name is given to, to that settlement. And um, he was assassinated by Hamas, and that's the, the symbolism of basically calling that settlement. Then Netanyahu said that he's going to ramp up building new settlements and expanding current ones and restoring settlements. But he didn't explain if restoring the settlements means restoring the ones that were bombarded by the, by the Israeli occupation forces back on October 7 when they thought that they were targeting Hamas 
or uh, at any point restoring the Ghosh Qatif 21 settlements, the ones that um, Israel had to withdraw from, and they are found inside the, the Gaza Strip, mainly towards northern Gaza, northern and central yeah. Gaza. So for me, I mean, like, I do believe that the Israelis have big plans for, for uh, northern Gaza, but not only for northern Gaza, the whole of Gaza Strip. Um, the Israelis need to secure that last batch of land by the sea so they can control everything that's in the seabed. And don't forget that they started giving licensing for, for uh, the oil uh, and gas uh, offshore, uh, basically, fields for Western uh, companies. So they need that. Right. So this that this is actually coming together, isn't it? This isn't a question of if. This is a question of this is absolutely on the drawing board. They need uh, to secure, yeah. quote, secure... Gaza, don't they, for the offshore uh, investments and those energy opportunities, Leila? 100%. And this is why the Israelis have kept uh, the attacks uh, on Lebanon like at a minimum scale, because they're afraid that the retaliation from Hezbollah would be against the oil rigs, that they have set close to the Lebanese, uh, actually within Lebanese economic waters, we're still negotiating over our, our maritime waters at the moment. But um, the idea is that any missile that hits those rigs it means all the investments will leave as well. So they're keeping it at a bare minimum. We Today, the Israelis have used uh, air raids against Lebanese territories. They killed two civilians, a mother and her child from the Mazraani family. Um, uh, her child is not young. He's, a, he's an adult, but like a mother and uh, a son. So um, I think that the next few days, we're going to see a ma massive escalation from, from the southern Lebanese front, which is basically north-occupied Palestinian territories. And um, I do believe that there will be targeting of um, further settlements within uh, the occupied Palestinian territories in the north. And then on the south, on the South Lebanon front, um, what do you see coming? Because there, there's a few different things at play here. Um, obviously, Leb uh, Hezbollah let us, they would they would want to draw some of the Leban um, some of the Israeli uh, military attention or military assets, uh, ammunition, manpower, they want to draw that north in order to maybe possibly take some pressure off of Gaza or put pressure on the Israelis. But you also have the Americans uh, in the neighborhood as well, Leila. So from a from Hezbollah's point of view, uh, strategically, how are they looking at this? Well, Hezbollah looks very comfortable in the way that they're, they've been uh, targeting the situation. Every time the Israelis attack, there's a retaliation from Hezbollah because Lebanon is in the self-defense mode. So like we retaliate to whatever aggression is happening against Lebanon. And that's the stand of Hezbollah so far. However, if the northern front, northern Palestinian front, which is basically South Lebanon, expands, Hezbollah had already warned, if you remember Nasrallah, Said Hassan Nasrallah, who was the Secretary General for Hezbollah, he warned the Americans that if they interfere in this war, then every single American and American interest and American base will be a target in the Middle East. And the first move towards that was the Islamic movement in Iraq targeting a ton of uh, American military base in, in uh, Syria, and they killed uh, five soldiers, which the Americans later on said that, claimed that they actually died in a, in a plane crash over the Eastern Mediterranean in a routine uh, uh, training, uh, basically uh, in a training routine, which didn't fly with, with most of the reporters over here, especially the ones who monitor the radar and there was no plane at the time. Uh, so for me, I do believe that uh, Hezbollah are very lax when it comes to this war. They know their capabilities. They have highly trained men who have taken part in several wars across this region. Not only that they are uh, equipped with like most of some of the most advanced weapons you can see in the market today that they can outsource not only from Ukraine, but from other countries as well. 
uh, don't forget that they also have the backing of the Houthis on Sarullah in Yemen, who can cut off any movement from Bab al-Mandab towards the Red Sea and beyond. And then you have uh, basically the Islamic movement in, in Iraq. They all work simultaneously together. There might be a coordination or not, it doesn't matter. But when one of them is being targeted, the other, the other to actually retaliate. And we've seen it over the past six weeks, seven weeks, right? So Hezbollah doesn't mind opening the southern Lebanese front. However, they're waiting to see the situation. If it escalates, where, which means by, by, by escalates, if the Israelis change their behavior towards Lebanon by attacking deep inside Lebanon, we're talking about Saida city, the capital, Beirut, and beyond. Or if Hamas actually asks for Hezbollah's help, that's when they're going to expand the front. So far, it has been mitigated along the blue line, which is the withdrawal line that marks the Israeli withdrawal from most of southern Lebanon back in the year 2000. So I don't see it escalating beyond that unless the Israelis change their behavior. And the Israelis are not going to open two fronts at the same time, one in the north and one in the south, fighting both Hezbollah and um, Hamas at the same time, for the time being. And also, Leila, I wanted to ask you about the UN uh, General Assembly uh, uh, vote on the Golan Heights. Um, how significant is this, or is this just one of many signals that's being sent by the uh, wider international community in the global south, you could say, um, but in the non-aligned countries? I mean, what what did you make of that? Well, you have to think about it from only international law's perspective, right? The Golan Heights are Syrian and they're occupied by the Israelis. The Israelis try to annex them. Um, in the past, uh, the UN Security Council unanimously, unanimously issued, and this is really hard because usually when there's a resolution against the Israelis, the Americans move to veto it, right? This resolution passed unanimously at the UN Security Council level back in the 80s, which said that the, the Golan Heights are occupied Syrian lands and the Israelis are a force of occupation over there. Under international law, an occupation is not allowed to annex that land. So when the Israelis tried to annex that land between 2016 and 2018, if you remember, with uh, Netanyahu uh, moving uh, and he held his first cabinet over their cabinet meeting for, with the new cabinet at the time. And he said, basically, this is uh, Israeli land. Um, the Syrians actually just uh, invoked the international law uh, and the right to the land and the UN General Assembly and Security Council approved that like they supported the, the, the Syrian stand. Uh, whatever the Israelis do now, whatever the UN General Security does, uh, the, sorry, General Assembly does, it doesn't matter. There's a UN Security Council resolution that was passed unanimously that ensures that the Israelis are basically occupying that land, which means not only the Syrians have the right to resist from there, but also Hezbollah, if they are invited by the Syrian government to take part in that uh, front, they can actually fight from there as well. Okay, so this 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 is interesting, and I might add also that uh, one of Donald Trump's uh, unfortunate moves, in my opinion, was uh, recognizing Israel's claim over the Golan Heights, among other bad it has, moves. It has no bearing on international law, so long that you have an, a, a basically UN Security Council resolution that was unanimously passed. It has no bearing on international law. So, like whatever Trump uh, promises, I mean, Trump comes and goes, but that doesn't mean that the Golan Heights are Syrian, uh, are basically Israeli. I uh, sorry for that. Yeah, and I, well, we haven't seen a retraction of that under the Biden presidency, not surprisingly, uh, especially with uh, Anthony Blinken as the Secretary of State being vehemently pro-Israel in his uh, orientation. To, to, to some people might even say that he is a, has dual loyalty 
Um, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, actually. He's even been given a chair on the Israeli Security Council, for, as far as I know, Leila. Have you heard about this? More Israeli than American, if, you, if we can say that. And he's playing the same role that Condoleezza Rice has played back in the 2006 Israeli aggression on Lebanon. He came over to tell the Israelis, go on with that war, continue even if you are tired, we will supply you with... Uh, an air military bridge and don't worry about what whatever happens uh, going forward you are entitled to bombard south gaza and central gaza strip but don't repeat the same mistakes that you've done in the past and if i actually i'm reading it very well what he means by mistakes don't let anybody know what you're doing yeah yeah that's that's not you're not being uh cynical or hyperbolic that's actually uh, that's actually the program, actually. So this is interesting. So look, what what can we look forward to over the weekend? Uh, do do we, are we looking at a protracted phase uh, where Israel is going to be maybe hitting more targets uh, in civilian targets in South Gaza, Leila, or consolidating uh, some of their ground operations in parts of the north? What sort of resistance will be they be facing, in your opinion? But uh, we got a few minutes left. I'll give you the floor for the final few minutes. Go ahead, Leila. Fair enough. Um, uh, from my sources on the ground, the ones who told me yesterday that the Israelis are going to attack directly from central uh, uh, Gaza to, towards uh, south, they had said something very interesting earlier today that uh, the Israelis will continue to push to attack civilians in the central and southern uh, part of uh, Gaza Strip. And they're going to, to actually create a mass uh, fear among the Palestinian civilians themselves, so that to, to one extent the, the Egyptians might be willing to open Rafah uh, border to allow them in. That's the first thing that they told me. The second thing is that the Israelis will not move on the ground until the third or fourth day, which means basically they're not going to move until basically Sunday um, on the ground in mass scale. And uh, Hamas is waiting for that. So we saw today Hamas's reaction, sending salvos of uh, uh, rockets towards, um, basically a salvo of rockets towards Tel Aviv, is to show that we still have that firepower and we are going to use it, but they haven't uh, basically used it in mass scale for a reason, because they know that the actual battle hasn't started yet. So according to my sources, it's going to start around Sunday. Let's wait and see for that. When it comes to the south, northern uh, Palestinian front, which is South Lebanon, I do believe that uh, the next 48 hours are very crucial. After that, we either see Hezbollah expanding that uh, front, or basically there should be um, uh, success when it comes to the Saudi and Qatari mass work under the ground. They, they've been literally exerting pressure under the ground on all their allies, including threatening with economic uh, tools at one point or another. And we've heard that over the past 72 hours as well. And that's, you see, like, basically, that's why we see uh, the Saudi uh, uh, speech uh, at the UN level, or basically the Qataris, when they spoke about what's happening in Gaza, we've, saw, we've seen their speech being very stern. And at the same time, they're very decisive. It's either two-state solution and you start negotiating now, or there will be basically other consequences. So this is what we're looking at possible escalation towards the next uh, 48 to 72 hours. So really a repeat, potential repeat of the 1970s where the oil producing Arab countries took a drastic move. We're, we haven't seen it yet, but is this it possible? Would not be 
through, through oil. I don't believe it's going to be through oil because the oil share, the Arab oil share in the market is, is not that big. It's around 30%, which is one third. But at the same time, if they stop the oil, you have other countries that can ramp, ramp up their production and then basically take all of the share from the market. That will increase the prices at one point for the first week or so, but the prices will shoot down directly because of the oversupply from ramping up the production from other countries. Don't forget you have countries that have superseded Saudi Arabia in terms of production, like Saudi Arabia, like uh, the United States of America. Russia, outside of the OPEC uh, nations, it's one of the biggest uh, producers, and you have other producers as well. So I don't think they were threatening with uh, OPEC, they were threatening with actual uh, investments that are already found in the West. So like those countries invest in the West. Okay, this is something to keep an eye on, definitely. We appreciate your views and your analysis on this. Investigative journalist Leila Hotum joining us from on the ground in the Middle East. Really appreciate you joining us for TNT Radio this week. Thank you, Leila. Thank you. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen, as Leila Haitoum. Look, first hour finished, top of the hour news headlines coming up. we got a whole lot more on the other side. So you want to join us for more on the U.S. front as well. We'll also do some Middle East analysis, too, in hour number two. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stick around. We'll be back in just a few.